Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. Great to have you along with us uh, today, the uh, 15th, no, the 16th of September. Yesterday was the 15th. Yesterday was the uh, Memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows. So later on in the program, we're going to talk about the seven Dolores, or the seven sorrows of Mary and devotion to Mary under her title, Our Lady of Sorrows, how that started and uh, how it can benefit you and me today. Also, on a lighter note, we're going to talk about how experiencing a sense of awe can help you to stay positive, especially in these kind of uh, un- troubled and, and unprecedented times. But first, we are going to just jump right in and continue our examination of the mind-blowing revelations that were contained in Benedict XVI's essay from last year on the Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse. Now, uh, it only came out a year and a half ago. I talked about it uh, on Happy Hour uh, back at the time, and I saw it then as a real bombshell. And I was very much looking forward to the response of the Catholic commentariat, especially from the, uh, from the conservative side. And I have to say that I was really surprised when this document was greeted pretty much by everybody with what you can only be called a, a hearty round of indifference. And I suspect that it's because it didn't neatly fit into the preconceived narratives of either the left wing or the right wing of Catholic journalism. And if you can remember back that far, <laughs> and I'm not trying to be funny, because I, so much has happened in the intervening 18 months, and I suspect a lot of folks have forgotten that the big tempest in a teapot, the big thing that had Catholics upset 18 months ago, was uh, the revelations about the situation with Cardinal McCarrick. The, uh, the, the shocking, or perhaps not so shocking, depending upon um, your viewpoint, but, but the, the revelation of widespread sexual abuse amongst the post-conciliar clergy. Now, at that, at that same time, you've got, when this document came out, you've got uh, um, conservative outlets criticizing uh, Pope Benedict for, you know, only saying what everybody already knows. And I think from both sides, because he was pointing a finger at the culture and at the sexual revolution as the cause of the, the problem of the sexual scandal in the church, because that's not what they wanted to hear. You know, they, they wanted admissions of guilt. They wanted blood. They wanted names. They wanted, you know, heads to roll. And so I think that a lot of them miss the, the real significance the, the magnitude, the, the impact, not only of what was said, but who was saying it. You know, and I'll summarize the points that we made last week, and then we'll continue with what I consider you know, these just staggering admissions in what was a singular document from our Pope Emeritus. And once again, it was called The Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse, and I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Um, in, in the, let's see, last week we discovered how in the years from 1960 to 1980, in that 20 years, societal standards regarding sexuality collapsed entirely. How psychology diagnosed sexual license, including even pedophilia, as something that was both, you know, uh, allowed and appropriate. How more or less openly uh, homosexual cliques emerged in the seminaries. How all these developments uh, really caused the extensive collapse of the next generation of priests. Benedict XVI even says that, uh, you know, his books were, were a sign that you were unfit for the priesthood if you were, if you were a seminarian and, and you were reading his books, and they had, so they had to read his theology on the sly. So, uh, you know, all of this is things that, you know, pretty much those who are in the, new, in the know, rather, already knew. 
But at the same time, he says, Catholic moral theology collapsed. This is not me, remember. This is Pope Benedict saying, Catholic moral theology collapsed, and as a result, the church was left defenseless against the poisonous changes in society. So he's saying the church was defenseless against the sexual revolution, the rejection of authority, the breakdown of the family and traditional values, uh, followed by the widespread acceptance of hardcore pornography and easy divorce and ultimately even legalized abortion. Because, he says, uh, before Vatican II, Catholic moral theology was largely founded on natural law, backed up by the sacred scripture. But, and I'm quoting now, in the Council's struggle for a new understanding of revelation, the natural law option was largely abandoned and a moral theology based entirely on the Bible was demanded. So, and this begs the question, why was there a need for a new understanding of revelation in the first place? But it explains how highly educated moral theologians, even priests, even bishops and cardinals, can suddenly be confused about basic moral issues. It's what Lucia Fatima called a, a diabolical disorientation, that there should be confusion about the moral teaching of the church amongst moral theologians of the church. You know, Benedict XVI, he, he puts his finger right on the problem and then he presses down. He says they abandon the natural law in favor of Scripture alone. Which means that Benedict XVI is accusing Catholic moral theologians of the most pernicious Christian heresy of the last 500 years. Now, that may be common fodder, you know, on traditional Catholic websites, but it's not something you expect to hear from a post-conciliar pope. It's a shocking admission. He said, quoting, While the old phrase, the end justifies the means, was not confirmed in this crude form, he says it is now the definitive way of thinking amongst Catholic moral theologians. Just let that sink in. And, and he talks about how professors of uh, theology complained uh, about the tension between, quote, the, the Episcopal magisterium and the task of theology. What they were saying is, and again, quoting, value judgments are relative and contingent on present circumstances. Therefore, the magisterium cannot speak authoritatively, cannot speak infallibly on matters of morality. Faith, yes. Morality, no. See, but that's a distinction without a difference. <laughs> the faith is about salvation from sin, and sin is a matter of morality. You can't get around it. But Catholic moral theologians are saying that in order to do theology, they have to separate those things. They, 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 have to, they cannot be hampered by the definitive teaching of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Jesus Christ. Because there are no moral absolutes. Value judgments are relative and contingent on present circumstances. What they're saying is there's no absolute right or wrong. Therefore, there can be no infallible statements about what's right and wrong. And this is, this is incredible. You have to you just think about it for a minute. Uh, the age of reason is, what, seven or eight years old. And it's defined by the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Being able to make that distinction is the measure of normal intelligence. So when a Catholic moral theologian says there's no absolute right or wrong, <laughs> that's proof that you can have a PhD in moral theology and according to the classical definition, be an idiot. 
it, you know, it's one thing for me to say that. Pardon me. It's one thing for me to say that, but it's another thing altogether, frankly, incredible for the Pope Emeritus, for Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, arguably the greatest living Catholic biblical theologian, you know, for him to say that, it's quite frankly incredible. If I had not read it myself, and, and you can go back and listen to last week's program where I, where I read the actual text, if I would not read it myself, I wouldn't have believed it. Not that it happened, but that, you know, he would be so frankly and openly admitting it. Now, you know, finally, he says the criteria uh, for appointing bishops also changed after Vatican II. Not because of Vatican II, but after. He says instead of fidelity to tradition, right, which was the, the, the primary criterion before the council, the new and most important criteria became conciliarity, defined as hostility towards Catholic tradition. He says uh, there were many bishops who were seeking, quote, erratically open relationship with the world, who rejected Catholic tradition as a whole. Unquote. He also mentions in passing how, you know, about, about seminarians reading his books considered inappropriate, um, unsuitable for the priesthood. See, rejecting tradition, rejecting the, the, the preconciliar tradition of the church is a sin against the fourth commandment. It's, it's a sin of uh, impiety. It's the sin that's best, up, uh, best summed up in the words non serviam. I will not serve. So to sum it all up, you want to know how Catholic theologians can flaunt the teaching of Christ and his church? You want to know how Catholic seminaries can be overtaken by homosexual cliques? You want to know how notorious sexual predators can become cardinals? How, how a popular Catholic priest can, can address the Democratic National Convention and, and openly support LGBTQ? How a bishop can not only openly support pro-abortion politicians, but another can even order his priests to, to, to bend the knee to the modern fashions of Black Lives Matter? Benedict XVI says this is how. By imbibing a deadly cocktail made of one part non-servium, which is the primordial sin, one part sola scriptura, which is the most harmful uh, of all Christian heresies, one part ends justifies the means, which is the most pernicious philosophical error of all time, and then you mix it liberally with the diabolical lie that there is no right or wrong and therefore no eternal consequences for sin. If my sins won't send me to hell, then everything is allowable. And this has been going on for decades while the Catholic apologists have been rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, maybe 18 months ago, the conservative Catholic press could be so invested in following their own preset narrative that they missed all of this. But not now. Not today. It seems to me that anyone in conservative Catholic media who doesn't recognize the desperate need to return to traditional Catholic belief and practice is either willfully blind or complicit with the internal enemies of the church. And our punishment, our punishment, that's you and me, for we're all sinners. Our punishment is that God is allowing this to happen, and that's no nonsense. Okay, coming back with lots more on the Pope's essay, the Pope Emeritus' essay, also Our Lady of Sorrows and how a sense of awe can help you stay positive in the midst of all of this. So stay tuned to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we'll be right back. Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization 
chaired by Father of Tear and Volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Our nation is too full of those that are crying down. Down with the police, down with the churches, down with teachers, down with government. Can you build anything down? You cannot. Certainly time in our nation to change our words. And let's begin now to use the word up. Up from all of this filth, up from this violence, up from this indifference of courts. Up, up to the hid battlements of eternity. Up, up to God. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. All right, we just summed up the uh, the major points of Benedict XVI's uh, essay from just last year about the sexual abuse scandal in the church, and what he revealed is a larger problem, which is the collapse of moral theology. Now, this essay of his was in three parts. The first part was about the cause of the scandal, which he identifies as a sexual revolution in the 1960s, coupled with a theological collapse in the church. Number two is its effects, the effects not only on theology, but on the priesthood and, uh, and of the formation of priestly life, and that includes the bishops. And then number three, what should be the church's proper response? Now, regarding that third point, Pope Benedict reflected on the words of Jesus, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, this has been applied to the sexual abuse scandal, and that's what this document is about. But Benedict says... um, In context, Jesus is not talking about sexual abuse. He's not talking about pedophilia. He says, and I'm quoting, the phrase the little ones in the language of Jesus means the common believers, 
who can be confounded in their faith by the intellectual arrogance of those who think they are being clever. So here, Jesus protects the deposit of faith with an emphatic threat of punishment to those who do it harm. What does it say about a priest or bishop who doesn't take that threat seriously? What does it say about his faith? What does it say about his virtue of hope? You see, because the, the virtue of hope is that God will fulfill his promises. But it also uh, is the virtue that says he's going to fulfill his promises, and that means he's going to carry out his threats. And we're experiencing that punishment right now. So what about the way forward? You know, for the better part of the current pontificate, ever since Francis has ascended the papal throne, Catholics, and and this is liberal and and conservative Catholics as well, have been calling for reformation. We need to reform this thing. We need to reform that. We need to reform the seminaries. We need to reform the blah, blah, blah. But I'm I'm here to say that it's, it's a reformation of things that got us here got us into this mess in the first place. Pope Benedict really admits this. He asks rhetorically, uh, quote, what must be done? Perhaps we should create another church for things to work out. Well, he says, that experiment has already been undertaken and it has already failed. And is he talking about Protestant here? Protestantism? Or is he also talking about this dream of a brave new post-conciliar church? as something that has been tried and has failed, and miserably. You see the problem. Christ gave the promise of indefectibility to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church alone. Not to reformers of any era who think that they've got a better idea than Jesus. What we really need is not reformation, but restoration. The restoration of the priesthood. The restoration of theology the restoration of Catholic morality, the restoration of the Holy Liturgy. And the good news is that Our Lady, you know, 400 years ago, appearing to Madre Mariana de Jesus Torres in Quito, Ecuador, under her title of Our Lady of Good Success, Our Lady of of Buen Suceso of the Purification, she promised a marvelous restoration in the Church after the, the crisis of the 20th century. And, you know, and when I say that's good news... I'm talking about in the context of the good news, you know, the Holy Gospel. The whole of the redemptive work of Christ, the whole of Christianity, is a restoration project. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins in order to restore our relationship with God the Father that was broken by the sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Anybody who tells you differently is either tragically mistaken or worse, motivated by the desire to justify their own sins. I should hate sins, and it's easy to hate sins that I'm not tempted to commit, but my hatred of sin should especially include my own. The demand of modern Catholic theologians to have freedom from the magisterium (laughs) in matters of morality is nothing other than a a rather transparent call for license, for for the license to sin. And that is the fatal flaw of all so-called reformation. If you would 
reform the church, let me ask you, in whose image shall you remake it? See, Protestants had to abandon moral theology altogether in order to justify the, the, the new doctrines of their so-called Reformation. And, and the modernist reformers amongst Catholic theologians today have had to embrace the, the moral bankruptcy of, of situational ethics. But the end does not justify the means. Sin has not, pardon me, sin has not and does not ever lead to happiness, and certainly not to holiness. I said it before, and I will say it again. What we need is not reformation, but restoration. So, what does Pope Benedict say should be the proper response to the issues raised in his essay? In his own words, only obedience and love for our Lord Jesus Christ can point the way. Learning to love God is, therefore, the path of human redemption, which was the teaching of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, by the way. Back to Benedict XVI. A paramount task, he says, which must result from the moral upheavals of our time is that we ourselves once again begin to live by God and unto him. Above all, we, must, uh, we ourselves must learn again to recognize God as the foundation of our life instead of leaving him aside. There it is. It is that simple. And it always has been. But, of course, as any martyr can tell you, simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. Quite the opposite. And that's why we need the sacraments that Jesus established to give us God's grace. As Catholic Christians, we know that the Spirit of God is available to all people, to, to anyone who's dedicated to God. Uh, anyone can be used in his service. Without him, we can do nothing. You know, I was reading the book of Judges last weekend, and I was struck by the insight that the heroes of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, also understood the utter futility of human effort apart from the power and guidance of God. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, that how despite the best efforts of the judges, the people of Israel would not turn wholeheartedly to God. Judges uh, 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? I mean, isn't that kind of the individualist creed? Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And what follows? First, the spiritual and then the political decline of the nation. It's virtually impossible to escape the parallel in the church and the world today. You know, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we have to ask, why did the chosen people keep turning to idols? And here they are. I mean, they're the only people in the world in right relationship with the true God, but they keep forsaking him. Why? And we might ask ourselves the same thing. Why would Catholic theologians abandon moral theology? Why would Americans abandon the foundational values that made our country such a success that even now people from all over the world are literally dying to get in? And it's easy. It's just like the ancient idolatries, our modern idolatries of identical identity politics and, and, and sexual license. Uh, they offer many rewards for those who would compromise their faith. Jumping on the bandwagon of Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, or, or you know, insert current, current nonsense here, offers acceptance, immediate acceptance, which so many people crave. Uh, it's the key to money and popularity 
to power and influence. All well and good in the short term. But rebellion against God always leads to disaster. The book of Judges reminds us that God uses defeat to bring wandering hearts back to him. So for so many of us, it's only when everything else is stripped away that we recognize the importance of serving God and him alone. So I say Benedict XVI has it right. As always, we must identify the idols in our hearts and renounce them and turn back to God for his love and mercy. As, as Thomas Akempis reminds us in The Imitation of Christ, vanity of vanities, and all is vanity, except to love God and to serve him only. And that is no nonsense. Uh, before we move on to, to our next topic, I do want to say one other thing about this, and that is in regard to, to the way forward. He says we have to turn ourselves back to God, well and good. But there are, there are rival camps uh, in the traditionalist community for decades now, and it's spilling over into the uh, conservative um, Catholic world as they you know, recognize the, the uh, enormity of the uh, crisis that we're in. And that is, on the one hand, well, I guess uh, currently you can see it represented by um, Archbishop Vigano and Bishop Athanasius Schneider. You know, the Archbishop Vigano would say, we just have to, you know, uh, Vatican II is just a do-over. We just need to burn all those documents and bury the ashes. <laughs> That's the way forward. Just pretend it never happened. Um, and Bishop Schneider, of course, would go with the solution that was offered by Benedict XVI, which I still think is the correct one. Not the reform of the reform, so-called, but just to, to employ the hermeneutic of continuity. What needs to be rejected is not so much Vatican II, but the spirit of Vatican II, so-called, the, the implementation of Vatican II that had so little to do with the actual documents. Yes, there are issues. There are ambiguities. There are things that, that need to be uh, hammered out by theologians and, and, and by taking a frank look at what's happened in the church in the last 60 years and, and applying the proper correction. But by and large, Vatican II you know, can, can be rendered uh, useful and orthodox and, and no longer a cause of division simply by interpreting the documents of Vatican II, the actual documents and not what you wish they say, but what they really say, interpreting that according to the tradition of the church. And abandoning this crazy idea that we should reinterpret the tradition of the church based on Vatican II, or worse, the spirit of Vatican II. And, you know, I, I don't really hold out any hope for this in the near future, but perhaps the way forward would lie in uh, a council or uh, a synod of bishops uh, or uh, a pope under his own uh, authority undertaking to create the one thing that's missing from Vatican II that was present in the previous ecumenical councils, and that's a list of canons and decrees. That when you look at, this, at these admittedly pastoral documents, that you still make a distinction between what can be held as Catholic and what must be rejected as anathema. All right, uh, going to be right back with lots more, including some tips on how a sense of awe can help you stay positive in the midst of the coronavirus lockdown. And lots more, Our Lady of Sorrows, Coming up next, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
we got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people. You know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We got to. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. So everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. All right. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, A little later in the program, we are going to be talking about Our Lady of Sorrows. We just had the memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows yesterday, and uh, we're going to be talking about Mary under that title and devotion to her seven sorrows or her seven dolors. That's coming up in a bit. But uh, on a lighter note, I ran across an article last month by uh, Holly Leibowitz Rossi. And the article was called How a Sense of Awe Can Help You Stay Positive. Now, I'll, and I'll put up a, a link in the, in the show notes. Um, now, this is uh, an article that was posted on guidepost.com. So, so Ms. Leibowitz-Rossi is not a Catholic. She's not writing from a Catholic perspective, and she's writing for an audience that's not necessarily even Christian. So uh, her insights are decidedly ecumenical. But her article provided a handy launching pad for some authentic, no-nonsense Catholicism, which is also a reminder of, of how much we share in common with our separated brethren. And she begins by sharing... The lovely language of Psalm 121 in the King James Version, thusly, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And then she writes about reflecting uh, on this verse in relation to the feeling of awe, which she describes as that sensation we get when we are in the presence of something ineffably bigger than ourselves. I think it's an excellent definition of awe. 
Now, according to modern catechesis, this is what is meant by the traditional term fear of the Lord. It's awe in his presence, that, that is the presence of God. And we often use the word awesome. Right? Uh, Mother Angelica used to say awesome all the time. But the things that we describe uh, as awesome usually really aren't. You know, it's like, I just saw this awesome movie. Hey, I read this awesome book. Boy, there's this awesome song you got to hear. Um, but these things aren't really awesome. And of course, in the final analysis, only God is, is really awesome. But Hawley says, quote, when connecting to something bigger than yourself, hope and peace can follow. There are at least three ways to connect with this feeling of awe during the current stressful and anxious reality of the coronavirus pandemic. Each, for me, comes back to this verse. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. So she says, first uh, is the category of natural awe. She says sometimes the hills in Psalm 121 are translated as mountains, but whatever its physical form, uh, this verse invites us to stop and notice the grandeur of nature. Simply being in a natural space, from a vast starry sky to a, a trickling creek, to a majestic ocean, a, a forest, or towering mountain peak, it's an instant moment changer, she says. Now, I live in Southern California, and I grew up here in the San Gabriel Valley at the uh, bottom of the foothills. And so we used to go camping when I was a kid. We'd go up to the High Sierras, to the Sequoia National Forest. I spent plenty of time at the beach in the presence of the, the majestic uh, Pacific Ocean. I think my favorite is to go out into the desert, um, getting away from the ambient light of, of the city and the homes and streetlights and whatnot. And you drive out into the desert. And at night, where it's really dark, and take a look at the sky, especially uh, during the, the time of, we have what are called the Santa Ana winds, the winds that blow to the west, and, and they're, they're warm, they come off the desert, and you stand out at night, and it's warm, and there's, a, and there's a, a, the breeze blowing, and everything seems alive, and you get out where you can see the stars, and it's magnificent, and I get that sense of awe. But, but Holly says, even if your encounter with nature is as close as your own backyard, you can still marvel at and find solace in nature's enduring presence. I think it's what Bernard of Clairvaux was on about when he said that everything he knew about theology he learned in the forest and, and in the fields. So you can draw on that positive perspective the next time you need to see yourself as part of a larger whole. So that's natural law. Next is supernatural awe, which of course is, is like this genuine awe. And she asks, is there any more elegant image to describe prayer than I lift up mine eyes? And she's right, because it's that simple gesture, you're immediately uh, brought into a connection with kind of traditional spirituality. She says, raising your gaze can cue you to feel held in an awe-inspiring realm. Even when unseen, that place is deeply present, alive, and available as a source of support and, as the psalmist writes, help. You know, as a Catholic Christian, of course, I understand that the unseen world uh, is the kingdom of heaven. And, and I experience that through the sacraments, and I see it, quote-unquote, with the eyes of faith. You know, the very definition of prayer is to lift the mind and heart to God. Physically, we, we lift up our eyes. During the canon of the Mass, the priest is instructed to lift up his eyes uh, and, and look at the crucifix, you know, to lift his eyes heaven. Of course, the priests celebrating uh, Ad Populum at the Novus Ordo lifts up his eyes and the crucifix is behind him. Uh, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, 
having the altar placed, well, you know, having the priest face the altar, having the altar placed three steps higher than the nave, all of that is about drawing the gaze upward, okay? Not having the altar at the low point uh, of uh, a church with raked seating like a theater, right? You want to, you want to draw, the, the whole point is that architecture draws the gaze upward. The whole purpose of the Gothic cathedral, every aspect of it was to draw the gaze upward. Now, if you've ever visited a Gothic cathedral, you know how magnificent they are. I'm sure you've felt that sense of awe when you, when you step into this majestic building where everything about it wants you to lift your heart and mind to God, what a, and what a great help it was. That's why the Gothic is still, you know, considered, uh, you know, such a uh, masterpiece of, of human architecture because of the spiritual aspect of it, that it's, that it's um, captured this feeling of awe in glass and stone. Uh, you know, again, so spiritual awe generally what we mean by fear of the Lord, that wonderful sensation of being in the presence of something ineffably greater than ourselves, namely God. And then Holly identifies a third kind of awe, pardon me, namely self-awe. Okay, sound of tires screeching. Okay, record scratch. Uh, I can hear you right now. Wait a minute, self-awe? You're saying I should be in awe of myself? Is this some kind of new age self-help balderdash? I thought this was no-nonsense Catholic. But consider, consider the psalm. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And Holly asks, who raises their eyes? Who has faith in the help that resides in the hills? It's you. And awe, by definition, is an understanding of yourself within a larger context. And that's an important insight. I mean, her, her words reminded, uh, immediately reminded me of Psalm 139, verse 14. I will give thanks and praise to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Now, here's that word fear again. I am fearfully made. Read that awesomely made, and you'll get the picture. Or, or think of the words of Shakespeare's Hamlet. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? His language is so beautiful. But, but, but what does he mean, quintessence of dust? Okay, that, that's a little unusual. Well, quintessence, of course, means um, the most perfect or the most typical example of a quality or a class. In this case, dust. Like the priest says on Ash Wednesday, Remember, O man, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So yeah, we're dust. But Shakespeare reminds us, we're the very best dust. And so the psalmist says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for I am awesomely made. And what's the point of all of this? Well, the greatest commandment is to love God above all things. And the second, according to Jesus, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's self-love again, right? In fact, at the express command of Jesus Christ, my self-love must be the very measure of my love for others. After all, you can't give what you don't have. So if we must love ourselves 
in order to fulfill the most fundamental commandment of Christ, then it follows that we must love ourselves properly. And how do we do that? How, how do I love myself correctly? Well, first off, we're not talking about the emotion of love. We're not talking about affection or sentimentality. It's not about me looking in the mirror. Oh, Matthew, I love you. <laughs> okay, we're talking about the theological virtue of love, which is an act of the will. The will and the intellect are separate from the emotions, and they constitute the spiritual faculties of the human soul. So, so to love is to will the good of another, and consequently, self-love is to will the good for myself. Therefore, I love myself correctly when my first consideration is the same as it should be for others, namely the salvation of my soul. That needs to be number one. And, quite, and we should also be concerned with the, the things of the body, the things of the world, you know, our, our health, our private property, our good name, uh, and, and so on. But we must remember the words of our Lord from Matthew 16, 26. What doth it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his own soul? Or consider the words of Tobit 12, uh, verse 10. Those who commit sin and do evil are their own worst enemies. So wrong self-love is egotism, that spirit of of self-aggrandizement. It's what makes people boastful and shameless and heartless and, and, and ruthless and offensive. We're meant to use things and love people, not to love, or not to use people and love things. That's the opposite of Christian self-love. It's the opposite of the love of neighbor. And so Holly says, you can also marvel at the ways in which you show up for yourself, especially during the pandemic. And she mentions a, a number of things, you know, staying calm in a stressful moment or, or encouraging a friend, setting some healthy boundary or learning a new skill, improving some uh, uh, routine or whatnot. She says, don't miss the opportunity to see yourself as ever-evolving, growing, and authentically positive presence in the world. In Catholic terms, I would say, do not miss the opportunity to grow in holiness because that is to fill the greatest commandment, and that's awesome, and that's no nonsense. Back with Our Lady of Sorrows right after this. Stay with us. Virgin Powerful Radio. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. 
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I am your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thanks for being along with us. Our final segment today is going to talk about the seven sorrows of Mary. Yesterday was the memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows, and this is a devotion close to my heart. Uh, it is, of course, a quintessentially, oh, there's that word again. <laughs> it is a quintessentially medieval celebration. And it's traditionally known as the Seven Dolors, or Seven Dolores, or Seven Sorrows of Mary. I did a video presentation called The Seven Sorrows of Mary a few years back, and uh, it includes uh, a brief history of the devotion and Our Lady's promises and the the various prayers and scriptures and uh, the Rosary Chaplet of the Seven Sorrows and, and some alternative devotions. It's available on DVD. We did an audio CD also so that you can um, pray the prayers in your daily commute or whenever you like. And you can find that at your local Catholic bookstore, Seven Sorrows of Mary, uh, or order it online at promultismedia.com. And if you can't remember that, you can just go to my website, matthewarnold.org, and there's a link to Promultis right on the homepage. Uh, I believe it's also one of the presentations uh, of mine that's available on formed.org. So if you have a subscription, you can check it out there. Okay, end of commercial. Now, my favorite image of Our Lady of Sorrows, I mean, there's a very kind of classic Our Lady of Sorrows image, but the one that I like the best uh, shows a very regal uh, Blessed Virgin Mary, and it's a full figure image. It's it's her standing and and crowned as, you know, Queen of Heaven, and but she has the seven long swords piercing her immaculate heart. You know, in, in fact, the seven dolors are often referred to as the seven swords of sorrow, recalling the prophecy of Simeon. Uh, and the devotion consists of reciting certain prayers, you know, on a special chaplet of, of, you know, a set of beads like a regular rosary, but arranged for that devotion, primarily uh, on Our Father and and Seven Hail Marys uh, for each of the mysteries, each of the sorrows. And they are, number one, the prophecy of Simeon from Luke 2, where he says to the Blessed Virgin, a sword of sorrow shall pierce your own heart, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Number two is the flight into Egypt, it's from the second chapter of Matthew. Number three, the loss of the child Jesus in the temple from Luke chapter two. Number four, uh, Mary meeting Jesus on the way of the cross from Luke chapter 23. Uh, the fifth sorrow is the crucifixion and death of Jesus as Mary stands at the foot of the cross. Number six, Mary receives the dead body of Jesus into her arms, right? That's that the famous image known as the Pieta. And number seven, the body of Jesus is placed into the tomb. All three of those uh, last sorrows are from John chapter 19. Now, there are also other devotions, shorter devotions go back to medieval times, the simplest of which is just to say one Hail Mary for each of the sorrows. According to St. Bridget, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary grants seven graces to the souls 
who honor her daily by meditating on her tears and dolors. So, I mean, there isn't a prescribed devotion other than to meditate um, on each one of these um, seven sorrows. And here are the seven graces that were revealed to Bridget, St. Bridget. Number one, I, meaning Mary, will grant peace to their families. Number two, they will be enlightened about the divine mysteries. Number three, I will console them in their pains, and I will accompany them, accompany them in their work. Number four, I will give them as much as they ask for, as long as it does not oppose the adorable will of my divine Son or the sanctification of their souls. Number five, I will defend them in their spiritual battles with the infernal enemy, and I will protect them at every instant of their lives. Number six, I will visibly help them at the moment of their death. They will see the face of their mother. And number seven, I have obtained this grace from my divine son, that those who propagate this devotion to my tears and dolors will be taken directly from this earthly life to eternal happiness, since all their sins will be forgiven, and my son and I will be their eternal consolation and joy. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. And to use the words of the bard again, uh, it's a beautiful and powerful devotion. And while it is characteristically medieval, devotion to the seven sorrows is also timely. Very much so. And you don't have to take my word for it. Our Lady herself said so. Uh, one of the few places in the world where the Catholic Church is actually flourishing, where it's actually growing right now, is Africa. And I can't tell you how many priests that I have met, both here in the United States and in Canada, that are from Africa, particularly from Nigeria. It's amazing. I mean, here we are, the, the U.S. and Canada, two of the wealthiest uh, Western countries with large Catholic populations. You'd think we'd be, you know, exporting priests. You'd be sending priests to Africa, and, and it's the other way around. They're sending priests to us. But it was in Africa in the 1980s, uh, just prior to the, to the genocide in Rwanda, when the Blessed Virgin Mary, and this is approved by the Church, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to the visionary Marie-Claire Mukangongo in Kibeho, Rwanda. And Our Lady of Kibeho's messages to Marie-Claire focused on an urgent call to repentance. Remember, this happened just you know, prior to the events that are happening right now. And so it's not surprising, you know, considering everything we just heard about from Benedict XVI. Her message, repent, 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 convert while there is still time. And that was in the 1980s, friend. That message is more urgent today. I suggest you maybe time is running out. Now, you might like to know that according to Marie Claire's visions, Our Lady of Cabejo made further promises specifically to those who pray the Seven Sorrows Rosary, right, the, the, the chaplet. She says, uh, she promised, rather, number one, with the recitation of the Seven Sorrows Rosary, the hardest hearts will change if you pray it for yourself or for others. Number two, by the recitation of the Seven Sorrows Rosary, you shall be freed from obsessions and addictions. Pretty necessary in our times. Number three, the Rosary, this Rosary, when said from the heart, will win us true repentance for our sins and free our souls from guilt and remorse. Number four, those who say it often, especially on Tuesdays and Fridays, okay, this is when Our Lady wanted it to, to be recited. Um, those who say it often, especially on Tuesdays and Fridays, shall obtain clear understanding of their weaknesses and flaws, causing them to sin, 
and those things we don't like about ourselves and thought were part of our character shall change. Number five, you shall obtain whatever you ask this rosary, praying this rosary from the heart, and more than ever, the world needs the rosary of the seven sorrows. So many, many graces result from praying this chaplet, but it's not meant to replace the traditional rosary. You know, Our Lady of Cabejo requesting that the faithful pray the seven sorrows rosary on Tuesdays and Fridays. And I suspect maybe in addition to your, to your uh, regular recitation of the rosary. And of course, going all the way back to the Middle Ages, the devotion to the seven sorrows as uh, you know, the graces revealed to uh, St. Bridget just simply by meditating, however briefly, on her sorrows each day. So a final word on, on Our Lady with Sorrows. Now, I don't know if you've uh, heard about this church pop published a novena prayer, which had been published years ago on EWTN and goes back, you know, I don't know how back, far back, but way back, uh, an novena to Our Lady of Sorrows for peace. Uh, and they published it as a, as a prayer for peace in the United States and an end to crisis and division. So they took the novena to Our Lady of Sorrows and edited the petition to reflect the current events. And they started promoting this back at the end of May. Uh, but given the fact that we just celebrated the memorial of Our Lady of Sorrows, I thought it'd be a timely reminder. It's a beautiful prayer. And as always, I'll, I'll provide a link in the show notes for today's No Nonsense Catholic podcast and the video uh, that'll be up on my No Nonsense playlist on the VMPR YouTube channel. So this is the novena to Our Lady of Sorrows for Peace. And I'd invite you to join me in spirit, praying this prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Most holy and afflicted, Virgin, Queen of Martyrs, you stood beneath the cross, witnessing the agony of your dying son. Look with a mother's tenderness and pity on us as we kneel before you. We venerate your sorrows and place our request with dutiful confidence in the sanctuary of your wounded heart. Present them, we beseech you, on our behalf to Jesus Christ, through the merits of his own most sacred passion and death, together with your sufferings at the foot of the cross. Through the united efficacy of both, obtain the granting of our petition. To whom shall we have recourse in our wants and miseries, if not to you, Mother of Mercy? You have drunk so deeply of the chalice of your Son, you can with compassion receive our sorrows. Holy Mary, your soul was pierced by a sword of sorrow at the sight of the passion of your divine Son. Intercede for us, and obtain from Jesus these petitions, if they be for his honor and glory, for our good, and for the good of our nation. For an end to all discrimination in our society, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. For peace in our country, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. For the protection of all human life from conception until natural death, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us that the souls of the departed rest in the eternal peace of your crucified Son, Jesus Christ, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. That we may see each person as Christ sees us, made in his image and likeness, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. That the family of those who have lost a loved one may know the comfort of Christ's constant love, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. For our President, Governors, elected officials, law enforcement officers, and all public figures, that they may encourage and promulgate peace in a divided society. Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. For an end to all violence and civil unrest, Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. That we may love one another as Christ loves us, even when we disagree. 
Our Lady of Sorrows, hear us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. All right. Finally, in its closing moments here, speaking of Marian apparitions, I wonder if you know about the supernatural messages from Our Lady uh, from the apparition that was approved by the Bishop of San Nicolas down in Argentina back in 2006. She gave many messages to the visionary Gladys de Mata, and I don't have time to read them all, obviously, but I just wanted to share this one, which was an antidote to widespread confusion, which is so clearly our problem. It says, Today the world is confused, and evil appears to be the only solution. Mankind is being led by Satan into the deepest of the abysses, to the total condemnation of the soul. Fortunate those who want to see clearly in their hearts. Fortunate those that stop to meditate. Fortunate those who are led by their mother. In these times of great confusions and so little light in souls, my purest light will be the one that guides you in the midst of so much darkness. I will help you to overcome all uncertainty. This mother will make your encounter with the sun possible. For this it is necessary to become small and to give in to my heart. Amen. Well, that was the uh, the message of Our Lady of Good Success, that devotion to Mary would be a great consolation for us in these times, because she's the Queen of Heaven under many invocations. Our Lady of Good Success, Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of Cabejo, pray for us. Until next time, I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, inviting you to tune again, same time, same station, next week for more no-nonsense Catholic. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.